thing about this passage today is uh, Paul is saying goodbye to the Thessalonians. We are finishing up 1 Thessalonians. I always get a little sad when we uh, spend months going through a a book of Scripture, and then we uh, finish up. But then we're going to start Second Thessalonians, so we're going to jump right back into it, and we're looking forward to, uh, to that uh, as well. But as Paul is sort of saying goodbye uh, to the Thessalonians, I, I thought about times when we say goodbye to our own children. Uh, we have four children, and they come back from time to time, and then they drive out the driveway, and Nancy and I are out there saying goodbye to the children. And we kind of give them that standard uh, standard operating procedure, Southern goodbye, with three qualities within that goodbye. First of all, we love you. Second, we, pr- we are praying for you. And of course, third, be careful not to hit a deer, right? Is that, I'm right, right? Isn't that what you do as well, right? So that's kind of what we do. Well, Paul is kind of saying goodbye uh, in that same kind of way with three different just quick little quips here. Uh, he's given some final pleas to the Thessalonians. He wants them pray for the apostles, pursue affectionate fellowship, and present God's word and part in grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would help us to unlock the wonderful majesty of his holy word this morning. Father, we do turn to you, God, and we thank you so much that the word that we're studying today was written by a real apostle through the inspiration of a real Holy Spirit to a real church like ours. And we think about this being very ancient and very foreign and even using a different language, but in so many ways, they're just like us. So we thank you, God, for the truth, eternal truths that are found in Holy Scripture. And with a certain level of fear and trembling and also joy, we do open up your Bible today and pray, God, that you would teach us the wonderful truths that have so sustained the church for these 2,000 years. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn again to the end of 1 Thessalonians. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 25 through 28 this morning, and I will read uh, these short verses in their entirety, and then we will look at these four areas that I've already mentioned to you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 25 through 28, God says, and the apostle Paul writes, brethren, pray for us, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So first of all, we see here that, that Paul is asking for prayer for the apostles in verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. Now, brethren there is placed in the beginning, the emphatic position. So he is reminding them about the, the familiar relationship that he has with them. They are his relatives. And that's what the church is supposed to see each other as. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, uh, we, when, when we have a presbytery meeting, when someone gets up on the floor to address things, he will often say, fathers and brothers. Fathers and brothers, I declare to you this particular issue that comes up because we are indeed family. And what is he asking his family to do? Pray, pray. That's in the present tense. He needs them to get into the habit of praying for them. Uh, You see this idea of prayer for, for Paul all throughout his writings. Romans 15 says this. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. 
Uh, Paul's logic is, is real apparent here. He's been talking about the need for sanctification, the need for their growing in holiness, uh, their mutual love for one another, their mutual obedience, their mutual servants in Christ. And he would, in a sense, be remiss if he left out the principle of prayer. And he loves this church, and this church loves him. So he just adds this little point. And, and really, in your praying, please pray for me. Pray for me. Now, Paul is supremely confident in the Lord, and, and, and he also recognizes, though, his own limitations. He dealt with discouragement. He dealt with anxiety. He dealt with grief. He dealt with great temptations at times. As you remember, we went through 2 Corinthians Prior to this, uh, chapter 11, Paul kind of lists some of the things he's going for. This is sort of, a, this is sort of a, a honeydew list for you to pray for him, basically. He says, uh, are they servants of Christ? I speak of insane. I for more. And then he gets a list of some of the things that he went through in order to, frankly, bring us this gospel, in order to be the apostle to the Gentiles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, I far more in labors, I far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. Can you imagine not even remembering how many times you've been beaten? And in danger of death, five times I received from the, the, the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst without food and cold and exposure. And from such external things, there's the daily pressure of me upon the, of the concern for the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is uh, led into sin without my intense concern? Boy, the, the burden of the church in itself is enough. But can you imagine having been burdened by the church, by the sanctification, the holiness, by the evangelism of the church? At the same time, you're freezing and starved and being chased by wolves and you're likely to be betrayed by somebody. That was the life of the Apostle Paul. That was his life. When he was saved, Christ said, I will he who caused so much suffering in the church is Saul of Tarsus, a terrorist against Christianity. Uh, Christ told Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the church. Well, Paul knows that, and he needs prayer. He needs prayer. And he also wants, of course, prayer for ministry. Ephesians 6, with all prayer and a, a petition at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in, change, that in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knows he needs prayer. Now, Paul is the supreme theologian of Holy Scripture. So if you think you don't need prayer, then you don't know your doctrine. You don't know your theology. Did Paul think that God foreordained whatsoever comes to pass? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Did he believe that God uh, was, uh, was uh, in control of all things? Absolutely. But he also knew that he uses prayer in order to bring those things about. And if you don't pray, they won't come about. Because God ordains the end, but he also ordains uh, the mean. And I guess this is just an appeal to you. Do not assume, congregation, that your elders, your, your leaders, your pastor are doing just fine. 
They need your prayer. This is a call to pray for leadership. Don't just assume that they're not dealing with anxiety. They're not dealing with depression. They're not dealing with uh, marital issues. They're not dealing with financial stress and difficulties. They're not dealing with uh, financial issues. They're all dealing with those things. Let me tell you, every one of them are dealing with those things. I know them, and, and I counsel with them, and I pray for them. Your pastor deals with all of those things. So, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. In particular, Paul is talking about here Silas and Timothy. They have been writing with this. You'll often see in 1 Thessalonians uh, this, the, the idea of the, uh, uh, the, the, the plural pronoun of we, uh, because he's always talking, he's, he's representing in a sense uh, Paul, uh, and, I mean Silas and Timothy as well here. You see this when he's talking about prayer back in, uh, in chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. So it's, 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 it's reciprocity. It's, it's faithful for the, the leadership that prays for you. You should also be praying for them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 gives us this principle. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then he goes on and says, pray for us that we may be, have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. That's a good thing to pray for your leadership. It's a good thing to pray for me. Pray that I would conduct myself honorably. I can be kind of fleshly sometimes. I can be tempted just like you're tempted. And, uh, and we don't want to have a scandal in this church. So we need your prayers. We need your prayers. And again, you think about this idea. Well, if God's going to take care of it anyway, and he's, gonna, you know, he's got his plan already, what good are my prayers? Well, it's a great illustration in uh, the book of Acts here, in Acts chapter 12. Uh, persecution is rising up against the church, and I'll pick up in chapter 12, verse 2 here. Now, it came about the time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, assuming he was going to kill Peter as well. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, and this is one of those great buts of Holy Scripture, but prayer for him was being made fervently, uh, by the church of God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and light shone in the cell and struck Peter's side and roused him saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off and the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to them, wrap up your cloak around you and uh, follow me. And he went out and continued his following. He did not know that what was being done was being done by an angel. And the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now, the rest of the story is he knocks on the door. The people who are praying and this servant girl, Rhonda, comes to the door and gets scared and shuts the door in his face. <laughs> you know, you, gotta, you get a little bit of comic relief later with the story. But I love this story. I love this story because... I love that principle, but prayer was being offered by the church, but prayer. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, says this, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. You have been blessed with the power, in a sense, the device, in a sense, the weapon, in a sense, to unleash 
legions of angels? Are you taking advantage of it? Are you praying for them? Again, Paul is the supreme theologian, but he's, he, is, he is devoted to the efficacy of prayer. Colossians chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer, keep an alert with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. There he goes again. And that God may open the door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Open the door for the word. I was reading in Acts today where it was said there that God opened their heart to believe his word. We don't see a lot of conversions these days. A lot of legitimate conversions these days. You can, you can trick people to the cross just like you can trick them to, uh, that you're going to give, uh, that you're going to give them, a, you know, you're a Nigerian prince and you want to give them a, a fortune. But we don't see a lot of conversion. And I think maybe it's because we're just not praying. We're not praying that God's word, we're, people's hearts would be open to God's word. And I just want to press this point home. A lot of effort goes into these Sunday morning services, right? A lot of planning goes into, a lot of preparation, a lot of music practice, a lot of the building getting set up and all that. But it is all for naught if you're not praying. Do you realize that, that in, in a sense, the, the effort that you put in pray, pray, praying for this particular service, for me, for others that are involved with this service, really may be the most important thing you could be doing all week. Because I could get up here and I could just preach my heart out. I could have prepared all week long. But if people's hearts are not open, then the word of God is going to be void. It's going to be void. Gardner Springs is a, seven, uh, a, four, a 19th century Presbyterian. Hey, like that name, Gardner Springs. Backwards, it would be Spring Gardner. It's not a very Presbyterian sounding name, is it? But he said this, Oh, it is a fearful expense that ministers are ever allowed to enter the pulpit without being preceded, accompanied, and followed by the earnest prayers of the churches. Uh, Y'all know my favorite Baptist is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He had a profound ministry. He really changed the Victorian world in many ways with uh, what was going on in his pulpit. When he was preaching, there were people down, uh, scores of people down in the boiler room of the church praying uh, for that service of worship. He knew they were going down, that they were down there praying for him, praying for the service of worship that the Lord would bless it. And he would tell you that it was those prayers that actually changed London, changed Britain, changed the world as a result of that. Now we see here we are to pursue affectionate fellowship. This is sort of my summary thought uh, in terms of this little quick verse here is greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, you know, this is a command, by the way. But is this one of those ones that's always this made you a little uncomfortable? I mean, greet the brethren with a holy kiss. That's kind of counter to our culture in so many ways. But, but, but being a church that wants to preach the word and also wants to practice the word, we want you to understand what this verse means. So I'm going to ask Scott Elgin and Matthew Newell to come up here and <laughs> lay a big one right on t in front of everybody. No, I'm, actually, you know what? We don't have time. Why don't we? We'll pass on that. Um, here's what it means. Uh, it meant a holy kiss. And in that culture, a, uh, an inferior would kiss a superior's face, foot, 
elbow, hand, that kind of thing. You see this in the old movies, right? They would bow down and they would kiss and that kind of thing. But, but this idea of this holy kiss is also a, a term of affection here because, again, we are family, and that's what mamas and daddies do to children. They kiss on their mamas and their daddies, and the children kiss on them and that kind of thing, and we are a family. So that's really what he's kind of teaching here. This actually got to be, in the Eastern Church, sort of sacramental. It was sort of thing you did. And in the Eastern Church, in the Orthodox, in the eastern side of Europe and towards Asia, you still see them the way they, they, they kiss one another like this. It fell out of displeasure in the Western church probably around the 11th, 12th century, probably because people were abusing it. And you can imagine how they might abuse that, and it became kind of uncomfortable here. So, uh, so they, 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 they kind of stopped doing it. We tend to hug instead, right? We tend to shake each other's hands uh, and that sort of thing. But the beautiful thing about this idea of a holy kiss is, again, go back to 2,000 years ago. What was this church made up of? It was made of slaves. It was made of masters. It was made of Jews. It was made of Gentiles. It was made of males, made of females. It was made of different races. That's the way churches should be. And yet you have slave and master kissing each other. You have poor and rich kissing each other. They're, 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 they're not seeing each other by their socioeconomic status, by the color of their skin, or by their freedom status. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what they do. Again, I think it's perfectly appropriate for us to to hug each other. Uh, we have uh, Eng English friends come over from time to time, and they would see us hug, and people would go up and hug them, and they're, they're very uncomfortable with that. They're, they're kind of a tight, in terms of emotions, the English are very, very tight. Uh, they tend to not express emotions. And I remember just, you know, not even thinking about it, but I remember one of them saying, you know, we're very uncomfortable with the hugging. You know, why do you hug? And I thought, I don't know. I don't really recall hugging people before I became a Christian, but after come, becoming a Christian, we just hugged each other all the time. I was in uh, I was in Hobby Lobby, not Hobby Lobby. What's the uh, Home Home Depot the other day, and I I heard Alec, and I thought that's a friend because he pronounced my name right. And I look around, here comes Jess Dantes in this amazing designer track suit. He looked like a bodyguard for a Russian warlord. Uh, <laughs> coming up to me and he just gives me this big old hug and we're just chatting away there having a good time and it occurred to me later on the security guard on the camera what is that bald giant hugging santa claus for in the in the faucet aisle you know because well, we're christians and i know jess is an affectionate kind of guy and we're just gonna hug you know i'm at his navel but we're gonna hug you know it's just it's a good thing to do so we should greet each other with a holy hug. You know, you have to learn who's a hugger and who's not. You know, like you'll see me at the door, like, you know. But, but, but one, of the, one of the greatest, the greatest stain on any garment that I can ever have is ladies' makeup on my robe. I have to get this cleaned every now and then because I'll have makeup here because we've been hugging. Yeah, that's what family does, right? That's what family does. Now, some of you are more introverted, extroverted. Some of you are more open to that kind of thing, less open to that kind of thing. Um, but I would encourage, I would encourage a good hearty handshake. You know, one of the things I'd like to see us regain, I, I, I read a lot of Victorian stuff and, and been reading through this Master and Commander series. On, I think I'm on book 14 of the 20. They had this old expression that I want us, us to start back. And uh, basically, if someone got promoted or if they had a child or whatever, they, uh, the, the expression would be, I give you joy. I give you joy at being made lieutenant. I give you joy at the birth 
of a daughter. And the reason why I love that is because what are Christians supposed to do? We're supposed to grieve with those who grieve, and we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's easier to grieve with someone than it is to rejoice with them because we can tend to be jealous. And I think if we just get this principle that I give you joy, you have my joy, I am so happy for you. I think that's another way we can express this kind of affection here. But it all has to do with fellowship. Folks, I mean, is there one part of the service, one part of worship that's more important than another? That's really not an appropriate question because they're all connected to one another, right? But fellowship is, is a biblical principle of worship. And it's awkward for us sometimes. And we've become so independent and we tend to remove ourselves from others because we often try to protect ourselves from others. Because can we, can we be honest? People are a mess. And if you get close to them, you're going to be a mess. They're going to mess on you. But that's the point of friendship. You share in their sufferings. You go together. And you know what? You get blessed as a result of this. Just finished this great book uh, by Rebecca McLaughlin. I would highly recommend it, Confronting Christianity. It's part of a kind of a worldview series, apologetics and that kind of thing. But they do this research. They, uh, people were doing research, and I think these were non-Christian researchers doing research, uh, and they looked at the happiness of people. And they, they looked at the happiness of people in, in a very materialistic, uh, very uh, um, uh, successful economy, place like America or Europe, that kind of thing. And then they look at, then they went to third world situations and interviewed people and saw how happy they were. And one of the things they found out that very often some of the people that you would think would be the most miserable in life are actually happier than those of us who have insulated ourselves from one another because of our possessions. She says this, research showing that even people in deeply undesirable circumstances tend to be more satisfied than sat dissatisfied with their lives. And it mentions the name of an interviewer. Interviewed people in hard situations, including sex workers in the slums of Calcutta. I wouldn't want to be a grocer in the slums of Calcutta, but sex workers in the slums of Calcutta. He concluded... Quote, while the poor of Calcutta do not lead enviable lives, they do lead meaningful lives. As they, quote, capitalize on the non-material resources available to them. Perhaps the key to facing suffering is not detachment and removal, but meaning and love. Non-attachment may shield us from suffering. To love, it is to be vulnerable, to desire and strive to risk disappointment. But as one person points out, non-attachment also deprives us of our greatest joys. And deep attachment can lead us to the precipice. But they can also bring us to treasures of non-attachment cannot find. Y'all, I would, and I've seen uh, some sociologists have done some documentaries on this kind of thing too. There are sex workers in the slums of Calcutta that have more joy than you. Because they don't have all the stuff. They don't have the big yard, the big fence, the full calendar, and all this kind of stuff. They just have each other. That's all they've got. That's all they've got. And they, they help each other. They serve each other. They, they unite to one another. They act like family. 
we all have our guards up. And America's the worst because we're so independent. Let's go conquer the con- the, the, the 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 forest, you know. Let's go. Let's go make our homestead and protect ourselves from others. But in your protecting yourself from others, you are actually betraying this principle. You're actually betray betraying your church family. Now, how do you do that? Well, you 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 wake up in the morning, and think, how can I bless somebody else? How can I use what God's given me? How can I show Christian hospitality? That sort of thing. I want to kind of share an emphasis. That this, uh, some, I borrowed some of this from Tim Keller. The idea of Christian hospitality. Uh, the word hospitality is uh, philiozena, which means a love for strangers. And to be a xenophobe is to have a fear of strangers. Uh, Hebrews 13 uh, really brings up this point in a lot of ways. And there's a little book available for you in the narthex about the, the hospitality commands that you might find of interest to you. But uh, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says this, Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And you know the rest of it, right? For some have entertained angels without knowing it. Wow. Now, he's referring back to Genesis chapter 18, right? Where the, uh, Jesus, uh, pre-incarnate Christ, comes up with the two angels before they go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham bows down to them, recognizes their holy visitors. Uh, and he entertains them with hospitality, kills the fatted calf, that kind of thing. But the principle is there. There is a spiritual aspect to hospitality that heaven itself participates in. It makes it, here we're going to have a sacrament of communion in, a, in, in, uh, in just a few minutes, but hospitality, in a sense, is a sacrament. It's demonstrating the love of Christ and the love of others. It's a visible sermon when you see the love that people have for each other. This was very important in the ancient world, very important in, uh, in Hebrew uh, world as well. But in the ancient world, Zeus, the chief of all the deities, was actually the god of hospitality. I'm not telling you how to worship Zeus. I'm just giving you an example, a historical example here. But hospitality was so important. Travel was dangerous. Uh, you saw Paul's list of his travel difficulties, the rivers and the robbers and that kind of path. Uh, there were not really a lot of inns, and the inns that they did have, you probably wouldn't want to stay there. So you would go from one town to another, and you were dependent on people. Literally, if people didn't show hospitality, you could die. You could die. And uh, there's four parts to ancient hospitality. First of all, there's an invitation, a traveler. Let's say, the, let's say the Luns are walking to Athens, and they're going to Athens, and they're going on their little adventure. And if they need a place to stay on the village on the way, they would stop outside the gate or maybe by the, the center of the town by the well. And then people would come out and offer hospitality to them. So you'd have an invitation. They would, uh, there's a screening here. They've got to make sure the Luns aren't going to rob them. Or that they're not there to take the city or something like that. So often that you would go out with a letter of recommendation from somebody. And you see this even written in the book of Acts. Where people would, uh, would recommend someone as they practiced uh, showing hospitality to the brethren. Then there's a provision. When you brought someone to your house, you washed their feet or allowed them to wash their feet. And you gave them a feast. You didn't give them a Pop-Tart and some beef jerky. You gave them a feast, you know. And then you got out of their way and let them sleep. They've just walked to Athens, right? You know, so you give them a little bit of sleep. And then here's the rule. They depart after two days. They depart after two days. You, you don't stay longer than two days. So you don't abuse the hospitality. This was standard procedure out there. But you opened up your home. That day after day, the children were raised with people coming into the house all the time. And you, you know, giving them food and stuff like that. But then they were not to abuse it. And they were to get their rest and, and move on in a lot of ways. 
Well, if that's the standard of the ancient culture, what ought to be the standard for the church of Jesus Christ? Should we not even have a higher standard than that? Well, according to, uh, uh, to the Bible, we do. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says this, Show your love to the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. And of course, in Leviticus 19 and Mark 2, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. But the reason why Israel was supposed to show, and they did show great hospitality, the reason why is because they were slaves in Egypt. They were strangers. They weren't home yet. Well, folks, we're not home yet either, right? Heaven is our home. We're not there yet either. So the time that we have here, we're to do whatever we can to kind of give a home, give a heaven to somebody else. And I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, it's worth it. It's worth, yes, it's inconvenient, but, the, but, the, but that's kind of part of it. <laughs> I mean, how else are you going to suffer for the Lord? But giving of your own resource, giving your own time, giving of your home uh, to others. Going back to our principle on the Lord's Day, if you're practicing hospitality and you come to worship, that's it. You're not going to be tempted to go to a Clemson game and get all worked up and get all upset and everything like that. I don't know which, you know, football was maybe more upset than worked up. So that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, then we see here then uh, that we're to present God's word. He says here, I adjure you by the Lord to have this red letter read to all the brethren. It's remarkable to me the number of churches that have fallen because they've given up the word of God. They no longer respect it. They no longer fear God. They think it's suggestions rather than commandments. They think that Jesus wasn't really God. He was just an example, etc., etc., etc. And here's a command right here. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Now, Paul's kind of shifting here to first person. He might have even taken the pen and kind of finished this last bit with his signature on here. But that idea of adjure is strong. He's basically binding them with an oath. I want you, the leaders of this church, by an oath before the Lord to make sure the word of God is read. And, of course, Paul comes from a Jewish background where in the synagogues, every time they met in the synagogues, they would pull out a scroll and they would read the word of God. He expected that same sort of practice to be uh, in the church of Jesus Christ. And, of course, what he is writing is the word of the Lord. Peter tells us that, that Paul, Paul's, Paul's level of writing, this, he calls them scriptures. He says you are to accept them just like you accept the scriptures. You got Paul, you got Isaiah, you got Moses. They're all scriptures. So it's not just a matter of reading it for information. It's a matter of reading it in order to obey. So one commentator says this letter was to be read as God's word, a revelation from heaven. And that was true and authoritative, requiring belief and obedience. John 17, 17 says this, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. You know, the, the leadership of this church understands our church could fail at any point in time. Lots of churches fail. I have seen us shut down multiple churches over the last few years in our denominations, normally in little small rural areas where the population shift and that kind of thing. But you know what? If we are faithfully reading the word, if the church fails, the church fails. And there are people that will not come to this church because we respect the word of God so much. That's fine. That's, this church isn't for everybody. It's not for everybody. But this emphasis on God's word is so, so, so important. That's why your bulletin is pregnant with doctrine. That's why my sermons are loaded with different cross-references and stuff like that. Because it is never, ever, ever my ambition just to be a clever fellow. 
It's never my desire to give you a really good speech on Sunday morning. My words will return void. God's words do not return void. The emphasis is uh, on our whole worship service ought to be based upon the word of God. And one of the frustrations with a lot of evangelical, uh, you see this especially in the megachurches, is they are so desirous to attract people, they're almost apologetic about the word of God. They'll spend more time on a sermon illustration from an Avengers movie than they will about actually giving you what God's word itself says. And then they kind of, there's some, can we be honest? There's some hard things in God's word. There's some awkward things in God's word. We sort of avoid those because we don't want to deal with it. And, and one of the, one, one, I'm going to make a statement here. I've heard it from somebody else. It's not original, but it's true if you've ever been to these. If you go to an old liberal mainline church that no longer fears God, no longer respects his word, but keeps to the liturgy because of its tradition, you'll hear more Bible in one of those liberal dead churches than you will hear in a lot of evangelical medical churches. Now, it's because they're not willing to get rid of their literature, their tradition, that their Bible's in there. They don't necessarily fear God or love God's word and everything. But these folks over here are trying to entertain. And they're just trying to get you to sign up. And the word of God is offensive at times. It's troublesome at times. It should not be that way, folks. Can't you be a winsome, loving church with the word of God? Well, let's try it. <laughs> let's see if we can pull that off, right? That's what we've been trying to do for 15 years now. So you got this emphasis here on prayer, the word, and fellowship. Those are some of the great pillars of the regulative principle of worship. We worship God based on what Scripture itself reveals. And then he closes here. He parts in grace. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, Paul begins this passage with grace. He now ends this idea with grace. Grace would be the great summary word of, of, of Christianity. If you needed one word to describe what Christianity was all about, it's grace. The other religions have to do with God owing you because you're so good, because you've done certain kind of ceremonies or you've done certain kind of works. But in Christianity, it's all about what God has done for you, not what you have done for God. Grace is God's overwhelming loving kindness bestowed on undeserving sinners. And he's doing this. He's declaring this grace upon you. You notice that? He's not, he's not just wishing you grace. He is giving you. He is proclaiming to you grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So that's why I, I call this a benediction. This is a benediction here. A closing good word from the, from the Lord. Uh, uh, the, probably the first benediction we have in Scripture is Numbers chapter 6. This, uh, this is what it, it means to have a benediction. Uh, and then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name to the sons of Israel and then I will bless them. Uh, it, you'll notice, for those of you who don't know, uh, times, for instance, that Jack Stauffer, our intern, preaches, he doesn't actually give a declarative benediction. Have you ever noticed that? I'll get back up here and I'll declare the benediction, or if I'm out of town, he will close in a benedictory prayer of blessing. But it part, it's part of our tradition, part of uh, Protestant tradition, that, that you have to be an ordained minister in order to be to, like what Aaron was, to declare God's blessing upon you. But when we close every service with a benediction, that's what we're doing. Th then in a sense, through me, 
through your shepherd, you are receiving a blessing from God for the sheep. And that's powerful, folks. This grace isn't just this nebulous concept out there. Wouldn't God wonderful? You're actually, the, the power of that grace is part of this benediction. He is declaring this great truth. One commentator says this, by concluding with grace, Paul suggests that God leave us to the struggle with holiness so that we might come to learn the reality and extent of his grace for us. Now, I want to close with this thought. If this was a standard run-the-mill Greco-Roman world letter, it wouldn't have ended with grace. You know what it would have ended with? Be strong. A challenge to be strong. And I think even just that, that one little verse really in so many ways shows the difference between Christianity and the other religions of the world. The world says, be strong, be stoic, tough it out, work harder, excel more. Christianity says, grace to you, grace to you. We are fallen people. We need help. So therefore, bestow upon you this great grace. The wonderful poem written by Edward Shiletto, who's a free church of Scotland minister. I'll give part of it to you. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of horn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars... My, we claim thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not as God's, not as a God has wounds, but thou alone. Father, I do come before you and just pray blessings and grace upon this congregation. All those who hear this sermon, Lord, we are in such need of grace. It's hard for us to pray. It's hard for us to show fellowship. It's hard for us to read and obey the word of God. We are in need of grace. But Lord, if we were to pray, if we were to show fellowship, and if we were to read the word of God in the power of, that you give us, and through that great grace that you give us, we can absolutely transform ourselves or see ourselves transformed by you and change our culture. People are desperate for these truths. Let us not neglect them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.